What if you could simply trust all information on the internet? My name is Sebastian and I'm on the mission to build a trusted web for all of us on planet Earth. An internet where my parents, possibly my future kids and my own generation can find truth and feel safe. Because to save the world, we need to fix the internet. And in the Trusted Web podcast, I embark on a journey with you, my listener and thought leaders, to explore what needs to get done. In this episode of the Trusted Web Podcast, I'm joined by Leticia Baudet. Dr. Baudet is an associate professor in the Communication, Culture and Technology Master's Program at the Georgetown University. She received her PhD in Political Science from the University of Wisconsin in Medicine and her bachelor's degree from Trinity University. Her work lies at the intersection of communication, technology and political behavior emphasizing the role communication and information technologies may play in the acquisition and use of political information. Leticia, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. To set a backdrop for this episode, what's the state of fake news and misinformation today? I think that's a really big question, and uh, it's one that's really hard to measure. Um, so because we haven't had kind of an index of fake news or misinformation that we've measured consistently throughout history, it's hard to say where we fall in terms of, you know, kind of the historical uh, perspective right now. Certainly there are times where misinformation was a really big problem dating back all the way to like the 15th century, um, at least probably before that. And there are a lot of examples historically, but it's hard to know how this compares because we don't we don't really have a meaningful way to measure that to on the same scale. Is there now a good way to measure? Still no. No, I don't think so. Certainly people are, are trying now, but in, it's really hard to know. So let's, let's think through what that might look like, right? You could ask people in a survey whether they believe in a certain, you know, number of, of pieces of misinformation, but there might be things that they believe in that you don't ask about. Um, or we, we know that there's at least some evidence that people sometimes answer survey questions um, to promote uh, a thing that they believe in, like their partisanship, uh, more than what they actually know to be true. So is that really belief in misinformation or, you know, do we count that? Do we not count that? And the pieces of misinformation people are likely to believe in are going to change over time. So it's really hard to know when do you update, you know, which things you're asking about. So that's really tricky to know. Um, people are also trying to use digital trace data to try to get a sense of how much people believe in these sorts of things. So if you're tweeting about misinformation, is that a good indication of whether you believe it or not? But obviously there are selection bias problems there, right? Not everybody uses Twitter. Not everybody that uses Twitter tweets. Not everybody that uses Twitter and tweets tweets about things that they believe in. Um, so there are a lot of issues with um, trying to measure it. So it's, it's, it's it's your guess is as good as your educated guess is as good as mine as to where we stand historically in terms of how much of a problem misinformation is, because it's just a really hard thing to measure consistently over time. And uh, you've done so much research on the topic. What are things that your research uh, has shown have done? Sure. So my research focuses mainly on misinformation on social media and how we can correct it in that Area. So social media gets a bad rap 
and, you know, reasonably for spreading misinformation. There aren't a lot of gatekeepers on social media. Um, there's not a lot of verification built in, which means that it's really easy for misinformation to spread. Um, what my co-author Emily Raga and I were interested in, though, is if, whether we can we can mitigate that problem within the platform of social media. And we've looked at that in several different ways, including kind of everyday social media users correcting one another, health experts, most of our research is on health misinformation, um, correcting, um, or corrections coming from the platforms themselves, which they're increasingly doing in terms of like labeling things or surfacing more credible information when they uh, identify misinformation circulating on the platform, things like that. Um, and our research shows consistent, if, if modest, uh, positive effects of correction, which is to say correction works. It works at the margins. It doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't work all the time. It doesn't work for every issue. But on average, we see somewhere between a 10 and 25% reduction in misperceptions when we show people corrective information on social media. Corrected information, what does that look like? In practice? It can look like a lot of different things. Um, so sometimes it's, um, so in the case of user correction, for instance, it would usually be kind of a really basic statement refuting the misinformation. So saying, I don't think that's true. Um, or scientists, you know, have, have agreed that this isn't accurate or something like that. And really importantly, um, you need to include a link uh, to a credible source when you when you do this kind of refuting. Because people, we have we have tested this, and people don't believe you if you don't believe if you don't include a link. So, um, I think the default assumption on social media is that you're full of shit. Um, and if you don't give me a link to to prove otherwise that you actually know what you're talking about, then uh, I'm not going to believe you know the information that you're offering me. And is this something that needs collaboration with the platforms, or is it a browser plugin? Or uh, in practice, what 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 does that look like? It doesn't have to. Um, so I, I think the platforms are doing more of this, and I think that's great. Um, and I think that they're doing it as as often as they can in a really informed uh, and, and research-based way. Maybe not as often as they can, but for the most part, I, I give them credit for doing it in an evidence-based way. Um, so certainly platform collaboration is great, but it, it's also something that everyday people can do. When you see something and you say, like, that doesn't sound right to me, and you go and look it up, um, and you find that it's not true, uh, it's really easy to share a comment on the piece of, of misinformation that you found, you know, and, and there's a way to do that respectfully um, and, and kindly and um, sharing, again, sharing that link to a fact check or an expert organization um, that is going to, to be perceived as credible is really important for doing that. Repetition is also important, we find. So um, it's actually more effective if mo multiple people do this. So if you see someone else correct misinformation, it seems kind of mean to also like weigh in and be like, yes, I agree with that person and you're wrong. But that actually makes it more effective when other people see it. And that's that's kind of the key thing that we think is, is unique about our approach to correcting misinformation on social media is Social media gives you an opportunity to not just correct the person who's sharing the misinformation, but everyone that sees that interaction. So there's this audience, and, and that's why we think it's really important for people to do this. There's this audience that sees the misinformation. If you don't correct it, there's no kind of second guessing, right? So they're more likely to accept that misinformation if no one is refuting it. Um, whereas if, if you, you know, correct it, if you know that that is incorrect, um, that, that, 
changes this whole giant audience of people, right? Which could be hundreds of people that see that interaction. Um, so we call it observational correction. So those people get to get to see the the interaction without having to engage in in it at all. You say you give credit to uh, some of the social media platforms. Can you sketch the the ecosystem of the platforms? Who is doing a good job, and is that a, does that differ per a region, or can you sketch the ecosystem? You want me to call out, huh? <laughs> I think there's a lot of herd effects with this sort of thing. So uh, platforms will adopt a particular policy, and you see it adopted by other platforms in response. So I, I wouldn't say there's any platform that I would necessarily say is doing it exactly right or that is doing a terrible, terrible job. Um, it's a hard problem. That's why you have a whole podcast about it. Um, so I, I give them credit, not because they're they're effectively fixing it, but because it's a problem that probably can't be fixed. So I think some of the things they're doing that I think are good are labeling and um, downvoting content that is you know known to be misinformation and uh, surfacing credible information on topics that are known to have a lot of misinformation circulating. So right now, obviously, the big example is COVID, making sure that there's good information available about COVID, vaccines, all of those sorts of things. Is this a thing that the platforms could serve together with uh, in initiatives and research like yours? Or is there intervention necessary from policymakers? What's the role for policymakers here? Is there one? I don't see an obvious role for policymakers. All of our research can happen essentially without without any policy changes, and I'm not I'm not sure what policy changes would would facilitate it one way or another. It's interesting. One of the things I learned while doing the podcast is that in Europe there's a high expectation of policymakers, while in the U.S. there there's way more trust in the platforms. So one of the things Europe they work on uh, firstly the GDPR data rights and uh, secondly now there's all kinds of initiatives of trying to collaborate with the platforms and see what systems they can make in place but yeah I there's so much going on in the platforms and um, what, I, what I heard from many researchers is that there's willingness from the platforms to tackle the information is that is that what you see as well yeah, so I think I think the general trend that you just described is is consistent with approaches to government in general, right? Uh, the U.S. tends to be less uh, less interested in policy solutions to things in general, um, from a small government kind of perspective, for better or worse, and sometimes both. From your research, for example, is it mainly focused on the U.S. or are there differences you see between the two? Yeah, so my, my research is mainly focused on the U.S. Um, we do have a little bit of data, cross-national data, that suggests that it works the same way in different places. And there's at least a, a moderate amount of correction that is happening, peer-to-peer -peer correction, that is happening on the platforms in, in different places, including uh, Canada, the U.K., and France. And we are working to, to do more cross-national studies, including um, Brazil and India coming up. So I hope to have more to say about that in the future. I think people don't trust the platforms in the U.S., um, but they don't trust the government either. So I think that's the answer is is not necessarily that they just think that the platforms are going to do such a great job. It's, it's just they don't think that the government is going to fix it either. As far as the platforms go, I think that they do have an interest. They have a self-interest in addressing the problem, partly from a user experience 
perspective, which is what they've kind of always said. Um, Facebook in particular has said, like, we asked our, our users and they said they didn't want to see misinformation, right? Which, of course, people say that because they don't think anything that they share is misinformation. They think the other people are sharing misinformation. So I think there is, from a user experience perspective, a, a, a self-interest there and also from kind of a PR perspective and an effort to keep them out of regulation. There is benefit in taking care of the problem themselves rather than having the government get involved. From your perspective, what solutions must be put in place for the, the problem to be solved? Is it possible to solve it in the community, really at a peer-to-peer -peer way? Yeah, what's your take on that? I think it is such a big problem that not any one thing is going to solve it. So I think my research shows that this is one thing we can do to help. I think we should do it because it helps. Um, but I think that we have to do a lot of other things too. So the platforms need to take steps to reduce the amount of misinformation circulating. I think a really good way that they've been working on that is, is reducing the number of kind of repeat offenders. Um, so we just saw Twitter's change in, they have a strikes you're out policy now, which maybe should be like five fouls you're out, more like the NBA rather than strikes because there are only three strikes in baseball. But that's, that's a whole problem with sports analogies. So, you know, we see that a lot, a lot of misinformation is shared by a relatively small number of uh, accounts. So if you can get rid of those accounts, it, it will make a huge difference, uh, more so than getting rid of individual pieces of content. So I think that's really effective. We're seeing now there's kind of legal avenues that people are pursuing to increase the liability of sharing misinformation intentionally, disinformation. Um, I think that that's promising. There are media literacy initiatives that um, can be really effective, although some of my research on media literacy interventions um, has, has not been terribly uh, promising. Um, so I think we still need to figure out how to do that really well. We need to do all the things we can think of and, and do them at the same time and spend money on them, which is often uh, a problem that there aren't enough resources put into place to support these kinds of things. One of the things that we're uh, at the Trusted Web Movement trying to do is making transparency and accountability part of the base layer of the internet in an open source way. How important is accountability of information that you can see where the information comes from? I think that that's still an empirical question. So theoretically, it should matter a lot. And that's a lot of what we teach people with media literacy campaigns is figure out where the information came from and figure out if that's a credible source. Um, in practice, research suggests that people don't, in their everyday lives, pay attention to those sorts of things. So when you manipulate whether they can see a source or not see a source, or whether it comes from a journalist or a credible health organization or a fake news organization or something along those lines, they don't pay attention. They're just scrolling, and that's not something that, that really um, captures their attention. So I think that that is something we need to figure out is either how to make that easier for people to pay attention to or figure out another way to give them kind of a shortcut to figuring out whether something is credible or not if they're not going to pay attention to that. One of the things we're exploring with, uh, with the European Commission is seeing how we can, if there's no one taking accountability for information, it may, of course, be published. Otherwise, there's no freedom of speech. But 
there must be a relationship or there, what, what happens if there's a relationship between the amount of accountability that has been taken for content and how far and easily it can spread. So there's always freedom of speech, but not necessarily automatically freedom of reach. Is that something that makes sense from what you've seen in your research or uh, not at all? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, as I said before, I think that restricting, especially for people that have shown, people or accounts that have shown that they don't have an interest in accuracy, um, I think it is reasonable to, to restrict their reach to protect other people that are not going to spend their whole lives verifying information. And we shouldn't expect them to. Again, yeah. And uh, lastly, the, um, in this decade, we're recording in uh, March 2021. What do you expect from all you've seen over uh, the last years and all the research you've done? How, where are we? What's the state of the internet at the end of this decade? That's a really difficult question. Um, this is one of the number one questions I get from reporters is predicting, you know, what's the next platform that's going to take off or, you know, what candidates are going to be able to maximize their, their use of social media or something like that. And I'm terrible at predicting anything, um, which is why I don't bet on things. I think we're making progress though. I think, I think two things, I think we're making progress from kind of a socio-technical perspective. We're figuring out how to do these sorts of things when we want to, we're making progress Maybe three things. Okay. So from a technical perspective, we're figuring out how to do it. Morally, I think we're coming to a new kind of understanding, ethically, morally, of what we feel comfortable doing. So like you were just talking about, you know, there's this, this inherent tension between um, kind of protecting people from misinformation and free speech. And I think we're starting to figure out where we stand on that question. And by we, I mean, you know, governments and individuals and platforms and everyone is, is kind of coming to an understanding that free speech is not absolute. And sometimes we care about other things too. And I think people are increasingly bothered by misinformation. And, and you know, there's, there's kind of in, in public opinion research, there's this idea of the thermostatic model, which is this idea that there's ebbs and flows in what people want. And the more you get of, of something, then the less you want of it because it, you kind of you want, want balance. So the, the classic example is in the United States, when there's a Democratic president, people start to prefer more conservative policies over time um, because they kind of want things to go back to, to normal, right? That's too liberal. Now I want it more conservative. And then you get the Republican president and you want the opposite. Um, and I think that there may be a similar kind of thing happening in terms of the the relative preferences of of kind of motivated reasoning based preferences, my partisanship, my identity, whatever these things that I really care about versus accuracy based preferences. So right now we're kind of at an apex of partisanship matters a whole lot, and maybe I'm willing to skimp a little on the truth because I care so much about that thing, but I think we're getting so far into that, that at some point it will flip back the other direction and people will say, okay, this is ridiculous. This is out of hand. Let's just all agree on what the facts are. And then we'll, you know, figure out these other things. Um, but that might just be the optimist in me. Yeah. So there is hope. I hope so. Uh -huh. I hope there's hope. 
Thanks so much for uh, sharing your insights. Where can people find the uh, research you did and the important work you're doing? Um, you can go to my website. Uh, so if you Google my name, I am literally the only Letitia Bodhi in the world. Um, so you will find my website and all my research is on there. Um, you can find me on my Google Scholar profile or you can uh, check me out at Twitter at Letitia Bodhi. I'm very easy to find. Perfect. We add all the links in the show notes. And uh, thanks so much for being a guest on the Trusted Web podcast. Thank you. Let's build the Trusted Web together. That was Leticia Baudet sharing her insights. Of course, you'll find all the links in the show notes. And I'd love to invite you to go to thetrustedweb.org slash podcast. There you'll find not only the links for the show notes, but also the report on the state of misinformation we did. We surveyed thousands of participants across the globe to better understand the impact that misinformation has on their lives and how they view it as problems. There are incredible findings that surprised us here and will probably surprise you too. Furthermore, you'll find the other episodes, the other guests, there's education, there's use cases, all for building a trusted web. It's all available there on the website and of course for free. TheTrustedWeb.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening and therefore being part of the trusted web journey. And let's build the trusted web together.